Well, hey, uh, my name is Matt, and if, uh, if it's your first time at uh, a Young Adults, I would love to meet you. I'm the Young Adults pastor. Tonight, obviously, is looking a little different. We're not in a series or anything along those lines. We're jumping into a worship night, and so I'm only going to be up here for a little tonight, and I'm going to invite the band to come back up in 10 or 15 minutes to lead us through a few more songs. And if you haven't gathered by yet, our, our, our kind of conversation that I want to have with you today, something that's kind of been weighing on my heart. I, kind of been in series when I went to Guatemala with a handful of young adults. It's kind of been the theme of, my, of our week and the theme of my prayer. And that is that I think that there is a barrier that, that exists in, in our lives that really inhibits. And it exists in my life. And if you're anything like me, it may exist in your life. And that is that there is a, a barrier that inhibits us from actually knowing God and, and worshiping Him as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. And when I think about that barrier that exists in my life and it may exist in yours, is I think that you or that me, or maybe it's just me, that I have a perspective of God that isn't really worth worshiping. When I, when I think about um, the way that I view God, the way I relate to Him, I kind of think I have too small of a view of who God really is. And so what ends up happening, if you're like me, what ends up, our default is that we don't really care to know God. Our, our natural default is that maybe we, we kind of just want to be entertained in some sense of the way. We want the lights to be good, the, the musicians to sound good, the singers to be on note or key or whatever it is. And, and so we kind of get in this consumeristic kind of mentality. And that's kind of what we talked about last week. But it's important for us to know, and one of my heart for our conversation today is, it is important as we worship God to know the one God that's actually revealed in Scripture. Over the last few weeks that we've, you've been here, we've been journeying through a topic that the God you actually may know is one you've actually may fashioned in your own likeness, one that may not actually exist. And we call that moral therapeutic deism. This guy, uh, the sociologist, coined this term that many Americans who fill churches don't actually know the God of Scripture because they have created God, fashioned God in their own likeness. It's important for us to know that in order to worship God correctly, accurately, we have to come to an accurate understanding of who He really is as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. See, to worship just simply means to advocate or to endorse or validate the worth of something. The reality is we all worship. Right? There is no such thing as someone who does not worship something, because to worship something just simply means to center your life around it, to devote all of your capacities, financial, relational, emotional, spiritual, whatever it may be, to devote it around something and make that thing your infinite, in short, to give it worth. But until we come to an understanding of the infinite worth of God, we're not going to be able to actually to worship God because we're not going to be able to subscribe to God the worth that He actually deserves. See, in Christianity today, I think that God has been abridged. He's been reduced, edited. He's been uh, changed and amended. That he's no longer a God that really awes us or awe-inspires us to worship. Well, I think the greatest sin in Christianity today, in churches today, is that we have too small of a view of who God really is. When I want to think about the way that I listen to worship songs or pastors talk or the way that I read uh, uh, pastors write books and things along those lines, his, his word has been stripped down to principles how to make our life better and not make it holy to glorify him. Or as Christians, uh, we have unanchored ourselves from a view of God that's so awe-inspiring, it really demands our surrendering of our lives because we have an accurate understanding of how mighty God really is. See, modern Christianity... I think is missing what the ancient Israelites centered Judaism around. And I want you to understand this. The ancient Israelites centered Judaism around a deep reverence, a fear, a respect for the personhood, for the nature, for the character of God. See, the ancient Israelites were so concerned about this. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It says that you're not supposed to misuse the name of God. They took this so intensely with such respect that they, would never, they wouldn't even 
put God's names on their lips. Whenever in the Old Testament, if you ever read the word Lord and it's capitalized, it's actually supposed to say the name that God gave uh, to Moses when he said, who, is, who am I supposed to say is sending me when he's going to Pharaoh? And he says, say Yahweh sent you, I am. So whenever you read the Old Testament and it's in capitalized Lord, they took out Yahweh and put in Adonai, which is Lord, because they didn't even want to utter the name of Yahweh in fear that they would misuse it. That's not at all how I think you and I kind of approach God today with this deep, deep reverence, this deep respect and adoration of really who he is. See, when I think of, of my life, when I think of so many young adults' lives, we add God onto our life like a piece of clothing. And then we take it off when it's no longer socially acceptable to identify with him. Even when we, when we worship, we lift our hands to really exalt our own plans. Right? Now, not, to, not to give God glory or surrender our own selves, but rather because our plans and our lives make us full of anxious uh, emotions and, and full of worry. So we lift our hands, exalting them to God, not asking that God's will actually be done, but asking that God, in, in some sense of the way, somehow makes our plans come to fruition. Could it be, and this is the big question I've been asking myself, could it be that we have a narcissistic centering to our faith? And we have a narcissistic centering to our faith because at the heart of it is an unbiblical, inadequate, and microscopic picture of who God really is. What else? What other reason would allow us for to choose anything other than God daily in our lives than a view of God that's so small that he really isn't worth centering our lives actually around? See, when we don't understand the value and worth of God, we inevitably will chase things that we see or think are more fulfilling and valuable to our lives. And then we will worship, center our lives around those things. We said earlier, right, to worship, just to center your life and devote your life around something that you deem as worthy. So for example, you worship school or you worship uh, your, your job because you value the opportunity that can be opened up or, or the impact or value that it has in your life. Or maybe you're consumed with finding somebody because you believe a relationship can satisfy the longing and loneliness in your heart. See, the reality is we all worship something. But the reason that many of us don't chase after God, even though we may say we do, as hard as we chase after money or relationships or a job or whatever it is, is because we don't actually know the biblical, all-inspiring, infinite, timeless, eternal being that there is God that's revealed in the pages of Scripture. So what I want to talk about tonight is this. This one thought that's been kind of echoing in my heart for the last few weeks, and it's this. Without a proper view of God, you can never actually worship God. Rather, you're going to sit in a church, in a worship service, or hear a sermon, and artificially manufacture a set of emotions led on by a good production. As you evaluate that production, is that singer good, or was that sermon good, or whatever it is, and it's just an imitation of what real worship is all about. So tonight, I want to show you where the heart of real worship begins. And it all begins with correcting our view of who God actually is. See, the correct view of God is that God is grander than anything that the human mind can contain. God is grander than any thought that, the, that our three-pound brain can process and contain. I like to say that God begins where our imagination ends. Or the way that a, a theologian I respect says, he says that without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain, the weightiest word in any language is its thought and word for God. What I want you to understand is what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And it's the most important thing about you because when you begin with a proper understanding of God, everything else in your life, everything else in my life, everything else in this world will fall into its proper context. And that's what worship really is. That as we place God first in our lives, 
Everything else will fall into its proper place and context in our lives. It's not a, an experience on a Sunday, but rather it's how you live your life on a Monday and every day after that. And the important part behind that is that you will choose to live this way because at the heart of worship is a constant surrenderance of your agenda and your will as you exalt God's because you know his worthiness. And the most important part about this is he has become your treasure. And so when I think about this, a correct view of God begins with the person of Jesus Christ. The 2,000 years ago walked on the sands of Israel. God to, to show his glory and display his goodness to mankind. I don't know what it is, but I've always been drawn to movies that have a, an ability to kind of take my imagination into something that's more. Silly enough, the, the movies that most often do that for me, it's kind of like geeky and nerdy, but the movies that most often do that for me are the, the Marvel superhero movies. Right? They, they, they draw my imagination into thinking something that's greater. Right? Characters like Thanos, right, who can, has this authority, this ability to kind of snap his fingers and change the universe or end life really without a fight. They, they draw my imagination into thinking about what Jesus could have been like. With theologians, when they speak of God's authority, when they speak of his power or him being all-powerful, the word they use is omnipotent. What it means that, and this is a huge concept, what it means that God is omnipotent, that Jesus is omnipotent, what it means is that there is no limitations placed upon whatever he chooses to do, that he is unequaled, there's nothing like him, and there never will be another like him, and that there's nothing that can stop him from doing whatever he chooses to do. But it also means that whenever he acts, like creating the world, the universe, and all of mankind, they're done without effort, and he expends no energy that needs to be replaced or replenished. But even further, what it means is that God's own imagination is the only thing that limits him. And his imagination in, in, in very nature is infinite. So God has no limitations upon what he can do and what he chooses to do. See, when we look at the person of Jesus and really what the heart of worship is and what I want to talk about today, and I'm going to wrap up quickly here, is this. When we look at the person of Jesus, I don't think we adequately appreciate who he really is. Right? When we see Jesus like a teacher, a friend, a buddy, a mentor, uh, what, and he is all of those things, but f first and foremost... Jesus is far greater than anything our mind can contain and, pr and process because he is God. See, 2,000 years ago, and this is the part that makes more sense to us, 2,000 years ago, God became a person and walked on this earth. And as the weight of his humanity gently created index on the sand under his feet, this part is the part we resonate with more, that Jesus was human. And that's the part that makes us feel a little better, but the other part's a little more challenging for our minds to grasp. And I want you to listen to this. That 2,000 years ago, God became a person and walked on this earth and, could, earth and could, have, could have crushed all of humanity under the weight of his divinity, under, under his feet if he chose to, but that's not at all what the gospel says. The gospel is the story of God walking with mankind, not to crush us, rather to uplift us, to encourage us, and to most importantly, save us and bring us back into a saving relationship with him. You know, when I think about Jesus, the part that it most blows my mind is he's the only person in human history, as his skin was being filleted open, as he was being tortured, flogged, and eventually crucified and executed, that at any mo moment during his execution, he could have stepped off that cross and brought all of humanity to its knees. In fact, Jesus literally says this 24 hours before he's about to be executed. In Matthew chapter 26 is one of the most insane pictures of Jesus' omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. Matthew chapter 26 is the account of, of Jesus being uh, dragged off to, uh, to court, which is eventually going to find him guilty or he's going to be executed, 24 hours before this all happens. As he's being dragged off, Peter's so zealous, he takes his sword out and chops the ear off one of the Roman centurions that are dragging him away. Jesus does something so interesting here. 
He takes the guy's ear, tells Peter to put his sword away, reattaches it, says, Peter, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. But then he says something that is, it flies right over our head because we have no context to understand the weight of what he's actually saying. He says, Peter, could I not call down 12 legions of angels to protect me if I didn't want to do this? And that goes right over our heads. See, legion is a military term for 5,000 soldiers. So what is 12 legions of angels? It's 60,000 angels. One angel in the Old Testament killed 144,000 people in the blink of an eye. What would 60,000 angels do? The answer is it would would exterminate in the blink of an eye 8 billion people. So what is Jesus communicating there? He's saying that if I didn't want to go to the cross, I could make humanity no more without effort. I wouldn't even have to do it myself. But even more importantly, what he's saying is that there is nothing, nobody, and no coercion that could force me to go to this cross other than my deep love for you and my deep desire to know you and for you to know me. See, if we'd be honest, this is not the way that we see Jesus. We see Jesus as kind of this like white Anglo-Saxon hippie, right? Who's got long hair and sandals and like for some reason has bunnies and like he's caring and smiling and, and all these other things. And yes, all of that is, is, is true. But there's another part of Jesus. Read the last book of the Bible and it says the skies are going to crack open. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, it says at the end of time that Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I don't think we understand the proper context of what that verse is saying. What it's communicating, what it's saying is that those who have followed Christ and given their lives over to Him and have a relationship with Him, that we will bow in admiration that our Lord King is here. But for those that have chosen to reject or do not have a relationship with Christ, what it's communicating is that their knees will buckle under the, under the weight of God's glory, that their bodies and spines will contort downward in front of of an all-powerful creator. That is a crazy reality. When I think about that, the question I've been asking myself is this. Would your, would your worship and would your life look any different if you were to see God for who he really is? Would your worship, would your life look any different if you had a more accurate view of who Jesus really is? Would you struggle with worry or anxiety if you had an accurate view of knowing that God is in control of all things? The book of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says that God works for the good for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord? Would you be so consumed with attempting to manufacture a plan for your future or your life if you knew that God created you and he created you for a reason? You just have to lean in and ask God, what do you want to do with my life? Would you continue to give God your leftovers if you understood the grandness of who he really is? The most amazing news is that that God who's infinite in very nature, which is kind of frightening, but the good news, apart, why the gospel means good news, because that God who is awe-inspiring is also good. And that he's extended himself towards mankind so that we can know him. And he can pull us out of our situation of being sinful and so that we can reconcile back to him because he loves us. So I'm going to invite the band back up to lead us through three more songs. And during these three songs, here are the two things that I want you to do. The first thing is I want you to ask God to see him for who he really is. I want you to ask God to help you and enlarge and correct your view of who he really is. Because if you do that, that will prompt you to worship. We can only truly worship and give give God the worship he deserves with an accurate understanding of who he is and then learning to treasure him above all else. And then the second thing I want you to do is I want you to repent. To repent simply means to acknowledge that God's moral perfection in light of who you are not and saying, there is some tension between us and I don't want this tension to be there any longer. 
before service, I, um, to be honest with you guys, I'm like on zero. You know, I'm on E and I, uh, I'm tired. I, I'm getting frustrated a lot and I got in an argument with my wife. And I snapped at her and, and, I, and I can sense even at this moment there's tension between me and her. The term repentance is to acknowledge that there is tension between you and God. And to say, God, I, I need your forgiveness. Because only when God forgives us is that tension removed. And so today, my, my prayer, my hope for you is this. Is one that God would enlarge and correct your vision, your view, your perspective of who he is. Because your problems begin to look far less, they look, they look less significant. Your worries look less impactful or, or, or stressful as you have a more accurate view that there's a God that created time, space, and matter and loves you deeply and promises to take care of you. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to repent. I want you to acknowledge all the ways that you have been offensive to him and all the ways that you have honored him with your mouth, but your heart has been far from him because only in repentance can we accurately worship God and saying that there is some tension between you and me and I no longer want it to be there. Let me pray for us. Father, my, my, my biggest prayer for this group and for my life is that we have more of an accurate view of who you really are. God, that you are the greatest thought our mind can contain. The weightiest word in any human language is its word for you. And so, God, may we, with reverence, with fear, with respect and admiration, God, understand who you are. And in light of that, who we are not. May you cultivate a heart of worship in us. One God that wants to treasure you above all things. May you lead us. Today we give you our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said.